Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We are reading verses 8 through 11. Exodus, chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen. So my wife is not really a big football fan, but she loves music. She worked in the entertainment, uh, in the music business for a couple of years, serving as a production manager for a concert venue. So she's not really into football, but she loves music, which means that for her, the Super Bowl isn't this Sunday. The Super Bowl was last Sunday. Uh, the Grammys are her Super Bowl. We kind of swap roles. You know, for me, during the Super Bowl, especially when the Patriots are playing, she, I can't be counted on to be doing much other than focusing on the game. So she, you know, and poor her, I mean, it's pretty much every year, right, that they're in the Super Bowl. And so she has to kind of, uh, she has to watch the kids and all that kind of stuff. But, but last week I did, like during, during the Grammys, I was there to, you know, put the kids to bed and and try to make sure that they didn't interrupt her time watching the Grammys because she just loves, she loves music. And, of course, the Grammys are this time when they celebrate those individuals who have had the the greatest success in the music industry over the past year. And, of course, what's interesting is is that basically in order to to win an award, you basically have to be able to do one of three things as an artist anyways, as an artist. You, You have to either be able to sing, right, Uh, And if you sing, if you can play an instrument, that's helpful. But there are plenty of actual musicians who make it who don't really play. They just sing. Uh, You can also do well in the music industry if you write songs, right? And many of the songs that we all love and know, you might not even know who actually wrote them, that the artist who sings it is totally different than the person who wrote it. You know, like I I laugh at the, the theme song to Titanic, which is like totally this teeny bopper love song was written like by these guys in their 60s. It's really ridiculous. Anyway, so the person who wrote it and the person who sings it are not necessarily the same. So you can make it as a, as a songwriter. Uh, you can also make it if you're really good at your instrument. Like if you're just really good at your instrument. I knew a, a guy who he, I played in a worship team with him, and then he, he called me up one day. He says, I'm leaving. I'm going to L.A. He got this gig and like Three weeks later, I saw him on The Tonight Show playing with somebody, and then I've seen him on The Jimmy Kimmel Show. You wouldn't know who he is. He just plays with different bands. So he's, you, you can make it as, a, as an instrumentalist. You play an instrument. You can make it if you write songs. Uh, you, can write, uh, you can make it if you sing. <clears throat> and then there are those rare gems that do all three, 
and they do all three really well. And one of my favorites, as you've heard me say, is John Mayer. John Mayer's a guy who he sings his songs, he writes his songs, and he's completely nasty on the guitar. He is unbelievable on the guitar. And so I've listened to his music, even though he and I come from very different uh, worldviews a lot of the time, uh, I'm still able to very much appreciate his music. And there's one song, and I've shared this, uh, this song with you before, these lyrics before, but he has this one song where he, he simply says this. He says, is there a God? Why is he waiting? Don't you think of it odd when he knows my address? So is there a God? Why is he waiting don't you think of it odd when he knows my address? And, and I have to wonder, for those of us who believe, and maybe for, the, for those of us who don't believe, and those of us who even do believe, if there are times when we wonder, we're like, why is God waiting? We wonder with things that are going on in our lives, and we are looking for direction. We feel like we need direction. Should I go in this direction, or should I go in this direction? And we we want to hear from God, and we don't. And we, we're like, why, God? Why am I waiting? Why am I waiting to hear from you? Have you ever felt that way? Today we're continuing, actually finishing up our series, a series we began, oh, I don't know how many weeks ago, a series called Soul Fit. And the question which I've been repeatedly asking throughout this series, asking of you and then asking of myself, is simply this. Are you soul fit? Is your soul fit? Is your soul fit? I mean, we think a lot about being physically fit, being financially fit, but is your soul fit? And we, we talked uh, uh, earlier on in the series about what does a soul fit person look like, and there are a lot of things that could be said. What we drew out is that a soul fit person is is a person who has stability. They are a person who, well, they're like a tree. We sang a, a song this, this morning that is based on a couple of passages, one which is Psalm 1, which talks about this idea of being planted by a tree, being planted by a stream of water, and then that tree is able to survive no matter what kind of conditions come, whether there's a drought or not, whether it rains or doesn't rain, that tree is able to survive and be stable because it is grounded in the, it is grounded in the waters. And of course, what we're talking about here is a soul that is stable, is similarly grounded in God in such a way that we have a stability that is there, meaning that we are able to live out of, in, increasingly, right? Not, not perfectly, but increasingly we are able to live out a life of joy and of peace and of patience and kindness, irrespective of the circumstances. Irrespective of the circumstances, we're able to begin to live out, increasingly, not perfectly, this life of joy and peace and patience and kindness. And isn't that the opposite of how we tend to think of it, and certainly how our society sees things, is that if you're not joyful, and if there isn't peace in your life, then the circumstances must be wrong. Right? If, If... if you're not joyful, if you're not experiencing peace, then perhaps you need to be in a different relationship. Perhaps it's, it's your spouse's fault, right? Or if you're not experiencing joy or peace, perhaps it's your career that's the problem and you need to make a career switch and, 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 and all these. And we think about it in terms of these, 
these circumstances. And what this is saying is imagine, imagine if we're just looking at it the wrong way, that what really needs to change isn't necessarily our circumstances, but our souls. Right? That it's, it's a little bit like um, instead of screwing in the light bulb, we're all trying to spin the room. Like you're trying to change a light bulb, and you hold the light bulb up there, and instead of turning the light bulb, you try to spin the room, right? I mean, it's like the joke. You've heard the joke, right? How many uh, eagles does it take to, to screw in a light bulb? Yeah, sorry, that was a cheap shot. It's, uh, it's one, to, one to hold the light bulb and a hundred to spin the room, right? You guys have heard that? No? Okay, I just kind of made that one up uh, for the weekend. But is it not true that we, we, we're just trying to change the circumstances, And we think that by changing the circumstances, that's what's going to lead to joy and peace. And is it possible that what we really need to change isn't the circumstances, but it's our souls? It's allowing our souls to become fit in such a way that we can live out a life of joy and peace independent of the circumstances. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing? Is increasingly we're able to live out this life irrespective of our circumstances? So the question then is, well, how, how do I get soul fit? How do I get soul fit? And we've been looking then, that's what we've been looking at. How do I get soul fit? And, of course, what we have discovered is that you, you have to do something. You must do something that your soul doesn't just automatically get fit. Right? I mean, you don't just automatically get physically fit. You don't just automatically get financially fit. You have to do something in order for your soul to get fit, or for these things to to become fit. And the same thing is true, is that if we want to begin to experience this, there are certain things that we must do in order for our souls to become fit. And so we've been looking at these various exercises which we can engage in, which can enable our souls to become fit. We've seen things like prayer, and gathering together for worship, and meditating on the scriptures, and Fasting, we've talked about fasting, and we've talked about community, the importance of community, being in Christian community, that these are different exercises which we can engage in, which enable the Spirit to come and work and bring transformation into our souls. And so we've seen we must do something. These are some of the things that we do. Now, I'm saving the, the, really the first for last. The first, I would say, the first for last, and here's what it is. Here is an exercise that you must do in order for your soul to become fit. Here's what it is. You must do nothing. The first thing that you must do is do nothing. The first thing we must do is nothing, rest. And this is what we discover here in this passage, right? This is talking about Rest and this idea that God has called us to rest. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall do labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And of course we see in this, there's also this idea of setting it apart, setting it apart for God. And so certainly we find throughout the scriptures the Israelites setting aside this time for worship. The worship is an important part of the Sabbath. Uh, they, they had, in Old Testament times, they had special sacrifices that were offered on the Sabbath. 
at the temple during Jesus' day. Uh, this was a, a day when they would gather together in the synagogues and they would have uh, t- the readings of scriptures and, and that sort of thing going on. So certainly we, we saw this last week. I think it was last two weeks ago. I'm getting confused on when I did these. But we looked at worship and the importance of us gathering together for worship on Sundays, the sort of priority of that in terms of our own spiritual health. But we also see in this simply the, the command to rest, to do nothing. And I think it's important that we have to be intentional about doing nothing. You've got to schedule nothing into your calendar. You've got to schedule it in. And so when someone says, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Let me look at my calendar. And you look at it, oh, I'm doing nothing. And they're like, oh, okay, well, let me know when you're not busy. We need to schedule nothing into our, into our schedules, you know, because there's, and then we need to say, there's a difference between scheduling nothing and accidentally doing nothing. Accidentally doing nothing is called being lazy. Scheduling nothing can actually be a spiritual exercise. And there's a, there's a, there's a quantitative difference when we do this. We'll see this as we move on. I think that when we accidentally do nothing, it, 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 very, it doesn't really do much for our souls. But when we're intentional about it, then it can actually be something that can begin to shape our souls. So well, the first thing that we need to do, what's this, this exercise? The last one we're going to look at, I'd say, is maybe even the first one. And that is that we need to rest. We need to do nothing. We need to realize this. Physical rest is a spiritual exercise. Physical rest is a spiritual exercise. Uh, We need to realize that we we can't draw as sharp of a line between our body and our soul as sometimes people have done throughout the history of of Christianity, that uh, sometimes there's been drawn this incredibly stark line between the body and the souls. And, And what we discover, actually, is that the Bible doesn't see it that way that there's much more of a continuity in terms of their understanding of the relationship between the body and the soul, that in fact, when you see the word soul in the Bible, the words that are underneath it are words that do not usually, are not usually talking about the soul as something that is completely distinct from the body. It's usually a way of talking about really the, 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 the entirety of the life or the, or or life from a spiritual perspective. But it's not always this sort of stark contrast. I'm going to give you an example of how this really plays out and makes it difficult for translators, actually, is in in the Gospel of Matthew, there is this part where Jesus Jesus is talking, and, and this is what he says. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. So, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. What's interesting is that the word that is translated life is the word suke, which is the Greek word that is often and usually translated as soul. That's the word for soul in Greek, usually word for soul. But there, you know, our word soul seems too, it wouldn't make any sense. Like it's talking about eating, you see? Like, and so we see that it wouldn't make any sense to say, do not worry about your soul, what you will eat or drink. You see, in our, our way of thinking, that is, there's a disconnect there. The point is, is that biblically, this concept of the soul is much more closely 
related than sometimes uh, we, we think of when we think of that word. So we've got to realize that there is a unity between the body and the soul, which is why physical rest is a spiritual exercise. Uh, Millard Erickson puts it this way. He says, humans are to be treated as unities. Their spiritual condition cannot be dealt with independently of their physical and psychological condition and vice versa. The Christian who desires to be spiritually healthy will give attention to such matters as diet, rest, and exercise. And he attempts to deal with people's spiritual condition apart from their physical condition and mental and emotional state will be only partially successful, as will any attempts to deal with human emotions apart from people's relationship to God. So we see this unity here, and this is why physical rest is a spiritual exercise. So what I want to do here is I want to look at three aspects of rest. Three aspects of rest. First of all, rest from activity. What would it look like to have a, a spiritual exercise of rest? And one of these is rest from activity. Another way of perhaps saying this is that we need to slow We need to slow down. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of sermons, a lot of lectures, and that sort of thing while I'm running usually. And, and my phone has this, my app has this ability. You can speed it up so that it's going twice as fast. And sometimes I'll accidentally bump that. And then the person's just talking really fast. And I have to, I have to go back and slow it down. And I think that that might be a, 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 a parable or a metaphor for life. That many of us, we've hit the, the, the twice as fast button. We're just going twice as fast. It's like our whole society is going twice as fast as it needs to go, and we need to hit the button so that we can just, we can just slow down. We need to slow down. You know, I've, even been, I've been trying, believe it or not, to walk more slowly. Because I've realized I have a tendency to just... I'm just zipping around everywhere I go, and I'm trying to just even walk a little bit more slowly. I'm trying to talk more slowly. One of the things that I do is I'll listen to my sermons from the previous week. I've done that over the last seven and a half years, and I'll listen to it, figure out what I thought went well, what didn't go well, and repeatedly over and over and over again, I'll find, Kevin, you are going too fast. And so I found I'm trying to slow down a little bit more when I preach. I'm finding even in just conversations, trying to speak a little more slowly, I notice that my, what I say tends to be a little bit more coherent. Just slow down. But I think this applies to everything in our lives, that we need to slow our lives down. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Kevin, I don't have time to slow down. Right? I don't have time. I don't have time to slow my life down, Kevin. I want to give you three reasons why you do have time to slow down. Are you ready? Here's the first one. You have time to slow down because your worth is not in what you accomplish. You have time to slow down because your worth is not in what you accomplish. You see, in our society, your worth and your value, generally speaking, comes from what you accomplish. And so, 
if it's based on what you accomplish, then, then there's never enough. I mean, you've got to do more and more and more. And so everybody's competing with one another. And so there's, if, you, if you rest, if you stop, well, then you're not accomplishing as much. And so you have to come to realize that we live in a culture where everybody thinks that their worth is based on what they accomplish. And that is what leads to this pace of life that is so fast. This evening, Nick Foles, the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles, his worth and his value in the minds of most people will be determined by what he does tonight. Nick Foles, he's coming in, this this backup quarterback that came in when their starting quarterback went down. Tonight is his night, and, and if the Eagles win, then... He will go down in in Philadelphia history as this legend. The Eagles have never won the Super Bowl. He will go down as this this legend. His worth and his value in the eyes of people in the city of Philadelphia will be very high. If the Eagles lose, he will be the scapegoat. Well, we lost because, because, what's his name, Carson Wentz? Carson Wentz got injured, and so... So, you know, we had to deal with Nick Foles. You see, his worth and his value is very much tied. In the eyes of people around him, it's tied to what he accomplishes. Now, I'm actually very encouraged to to hear, I don't know Nick Foles, but from what I hear, he's actually a believer. And he actually has plans to potentially become a pastor when he's done playing football. And so my hope for him is that his worth and his value, he does not see his worth and his value in whether or not he wins tonight, right? I really hope that because they're going to lose. So he's, I really hope that his worth is in Christ or it's going to be trouble for him. How many of us go through life and we feel like our worth and our value is based on what we accomplish? And if that's the reason, then we're, we're never going to be able to slow down. But when you come to realize the heart of the gospel... We have a God who loves you so much that he came to earth for you. He died for you, that he welcomes you into his presence and into his kingdom, and he sees you as valuable, not on the basis of anything that you could ever do, but simply because you are his child. You see, when you realize that, you can, you can begin to slow down. In fact, you'll even begin to approach these exercises differently because we got to be really careful here, right? Because your worth and your value is also not determined by whether or not you fast and come to church and read your Bible and pray. It's It's not based on that. Your worth and your value, God doesn't love you any less if you don't engage in these practices. This is the danger with doing a series like this where I'm telling you to do all these things. Pray and read your Bible, and, and you, you can begin to think, wait a minute, if I don't do these things, then does that mean that, that I'm not, God doesn't love me the same, or I'm, I don't have the same worth or value in God's eyes? And the answer is no, God does not love us based on our religious performance. See, when we come to know the heart of the gospel, it gives an entirely different perspective for why we engage in these spiritual practices. And it also allows us to rest from all of the things that we do in order to establish our worth and our value through worldly means. You say you don't have time to slow down. I say you do because your worth, isn't, 
Your worth isn't in what you accomplish. That's the first reason. Secondly, a second reason why you have time to slow down is because God will provide for you. You see, for some of us, it may not be so much a matter of our our worth and our value that we're concerned about. We're worried about how am I going to provide for myself and for my family if I slow down what is that going to mean? Like maybe, maybe I don't work as many hours as I usually do. Maybe I cut back my hours. Well, how am I going to be able to provide for my family if I'm doing that? How am I going to pay for the kids' college? How am I going to, all of that. And, and what I want to tell you is that God will provide for you. That he calls us to rest. You know, he calls us to rest. And one of the reasons that he does this is precisely because it forces us to trust. Resting is an exercise of trust. Three reasons why you have time to slow down. Your worth isn't what you accomplish. God will provide for you. And thirdly, I don't know, I don't know how to say this. I don't know how to put this. I don't know how to get this into your mind because I, I struggle to get this into my mind. But here's a third reason why you have time to slow down. You're going to live forever. There's no such thing as a midlife crisis when you're a Christian. What is the middle of infinity? Math, math people, I don't think there's an answer to that, right? You're going to live forever. We live our lives as if we have a limited amount of time. We live our lives as if, as if we have some sort of page limit. And we've got to cram everything into those pages There is no page limit when you understand the heart of the gospel, which is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God came, he died on a cross, and he rose from the grave. You know, there's no other religion that has that. There's no other religion that has such a a foundational basis for this belief in the afterlife. What's interesting is if you go back in the Old Testament, they, they believed in the afterlife, but it was not central to their worldview at all. And then all of a sudden in the New Testament, it's all over the place. Why is that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. You have plenty of time. You're going to live forever. Resting from activity means slowing down. It means choosing your activities wisely. Right? Be wise. There are so many options out there. So many activities that are available to... I mean, we live outside New York City. There are so many things that you can do. You've got to be wise with the activities that you choose. When I I encourage you to join a community group, I'm not asking you to add something to your schedule. I'm asking you to remove something else so that you can be in a community group. I don't want to add more to your schedule. I want us to be wise about what are the activities that we are engaging in as a way of resting. Resting from activity. Uh, resting, literally getting more sleep. I mean, let's be honest with you. Sleep is a spiritual exercise in, in, in this sense. Am I right? I mean, how patient and kind and loving are you when you've had two hours of sleep? Right? We need to get sleep, get some sleep, go to bed early, sleep in. As they say, sleep in on the front end of the clock. I've heard that. If you're going to sleep in, sleep in on the front end of the clock. It's better to get up at the same time every morning and go to bed earlier Anyway, just get, get some rest. These are sort of some, some obvious things. I think we need to rest from physical activity. We need to rest from mental activity. 
this is, this is why it's important to schedule doing nothing versus accidentally doing nothing. Because is it not true that when you accidentally do nothing, when you're lazy, you just end up thinking about how you should be doing something? And then you don't really rest anyways. Because all you're doing mentally, all you're thinking is about all the things that you should be doing. But if you actually schedule doing nothing, then you can say, no, I'm not, this, no, my mind isn't going to go there. This is not, this is rest, I'm resting mentally. You'll find that it actually helps you a whole lot more. Okay, so resting from activity. Secondly, resting from people. Now, I've been talking about how important community is. And I want to drive that one home continually. We need community. I keep using the illustration that isolation, living by yourself, being by yourself is a little bit like the frog in the pot of water. A lot of people have mentioned that. People like that illustration. I don't know if they just think it's weird, but I'll I'll keep sharing it if you guys like it. So if you put a frog in a a pot of water in room temperature and you turn the heat on and the, the heat, it slowly starts to heat up, the frog doesn't even notice it. And then the frog will die, not realizing what's happening. And I'm saying that solitude is the same way. That if you, don't, if, you're not in, if, you, if you don't get involved in community over a long period of time, if you're just kind of isolated, it will actually begin to cook your soul. So we need to get into community. That's why I've talked about the importance of community groups. That's why I've talked about the importance of gathering together to worship. Now, having said that, we still need rest from people. We need to be intentional about that, getting time alone with God. Spending time alone with God. That we need to carve that kind of time out. We, we, need to, we need to go to a place where there's silence. We need to go where it's quiet. Rest from people means going to places where it's quiet. Because, I mean, look, noise comes from people. Noise comes from civilization. You know, 100 years ago, there was no such thing as noise pollution. Thought about that? What a weird concept that is. Noise pollution. I mean, that's very much a, a modern phenomenon. I mean, we, we, we live in an age where everything makes noise. You can't buy a toy for your child that doesn't make noise. You buy a stuffed animal, and you thought, oh, good, I just got a stuffed animal. And then you realize there's a battery hidden in the middle, and the little voice, and you squeeze it, and it starts making noise. You can't get away from it. It's everywhere. It, 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 I mean, we live in an age of noise-canceling headphones. You ever thought about how weird that is? Noise-canceling headphones? We've, we've got to find time to, to get away, uh, go, go into the mountains. Maybe put on your noise-canceling headphones, but don't turn any sound on. Just cancel the noise around you. We need to get away from people. We need to rest from the noise of people. And, and here's why. Here's something we need to remember. God does not usually shout. God does not usually shout. He does sometimes. I mean, sometimes he comes in very dramatic fashion. This, this of course, here, we're, here they are on, on Mount Sinai is, is what we're looking at here. The Mount Sinai is this time when, when God meets Moses and of course, you know, there's this cloud and flames and, and, and thunder and lightning. I mean, yeah, God sometimes comes that way in a dramatic 
fashion, but I would say that more often than not, he comes to us not as he came to Moses, but the way he came to Elijah. In 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19, the prophet Elijah is he's running away from the wicked queen Jezebel, trying to get away, and he goes back. Actually, most scholars agree that he's going back to Mount Sinai. It's called Mount Horeb here, but but it's that it's the same mountain, that he's going back to the same place where Moses received the Ten Commandments, same place where God showed up in this dramatic fashion, same place. But notice how God shows up to Elijah in this particular situation. The Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. God does not normally shout. I started this sermon by referencing a song by John Mayer where he says, is there a God? Why is he waiting? And I said, I think that many of us sort of feel that way. Like we're, we're listening from God. We want to hear from God. We wonder, why, why do I have to keep waiting to hear from you? Is it possible that God is talking to you? It's just that everything around you is so noisy that you can't hear. So we need to get away from the noise of people, rest from people so that we can hear from God. How do we, how do we rest? We've seen rest from activity, rest from people, and finally, rest from things. Rest from things. This is the sometimes known as the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Simplicity, and what we need to realize is that this this idea of simplicity goes completely against our culture's way of life, and that is consumerism. We've got to see that simplicity and consumerism go head to head. And, And we see this by seeing the contrast between the parable of the rich man and the story of the American dream. The story of the American dream is, about a, is that life is found, joy is found, contentment is found in the poor kid who gets rich. That's the American dream. And the story that Jesus gives when this man comes to him, it's the complete opposite. What happens when a rich man comes to Jesus and what does he say? He says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's another way of saying, what must I do to get soul fit? This rich man comes to him because I think he realizes that having the riches is a doing everything for him. So he comes and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? He says, sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. You see, it's completely the opposite picture of the American dream. It's this idea that's the simple life. Of course, there's much 
we could say about that story. There's much in there, but certainly part of what he's getting at is that getting rid of these things that you think are going to make you happy, and they really don't. Talking about the the deceptiveness of wealth, and we've we've talked about this before. We live in this age where we think, like the, the philosophy of consumerism is bigger is better, more is merrier. Right? That's the consumeristic approach to life. Bigger is better, more is merrier. And that's the, the philosophy that we sort of unwittingly adhere to in our country. And what we do is we're making sure that everything gets bigger, and we're making sure that we have more and more. Did you know that the average size of an American house is 33% bigger than it was in 1983? It's a third bigger than it was in 1983. Now, I want you to be honest here. Do you really think that people are happier with their homes now than people were in 1983? Now, sure, if you had to go back and live in the 1983 house now, you wouldn't be very happy. But do you think the person who was living in 1983 really was less happy than we are living in our homes now? In fact, all of the signs show that people are not as happy, that, that most people think people in previous generations had it better. And it's this deceptiveness of wealth. And we've talked about this before, that essentially what happens is is that increasing your lifestyle makes you happier in the short run. But in the long run, it just makes feeling normal more expensive. In the short run, it'll make you happier. So if you get the bigger house, you get the nicer car, um, then, you know, initially when you first get it, like you're so much, you love it. Like, oh, I love this house. I love this new car, right? But then a few years down the road, here's the reality. You're not any happier with your fancy car than you were with your Toyota Corolla, but the payments are way more expensive. The mortgage in your big house is way more than the smaller house was, but you're not any happier, right? All it's doing is making normal more expensive. So we need to rest. We need to rest from things. So next week, we're going to begin a new series. And it's a series that's going to go up until Easter. And it is a series called Surrender. And basically, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to start in, well, we're going to start a little bit before this, but essentially what happens is, is that in, in Luke chapter 9, there is this moment where it says that from this point on, Jesus headed towards Jerusalem. And then as you read the gospel of Luke, we're intended to read it, everything that goes on from that point on, in light of the fact that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem to be crucified. And it's from that point when he starts dropping these hints he starts talking about how he, the Son of Man will be crucified. And this kind of pops up throughout this, this narrative. And so as we read through it, we're supposed to imagine this all taking place as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And he's going there. And, and this is an, is an act of surrender. What Jesus is doing is surrendering himself to the will of God. And as we read it, as we go through it in these coming weeks, it's an invitation for us to do the same thing. 
It's an invitation for us to surrender more and more of our lives to God. In just a couple of weeks, we'll have once again the confession tree that we had out in the foyer last year, the confession tree, and you could also call it just the surrender tree. The tree of surrender, and, and what it is, it's, a, it's there to remind us that life is found through surrendering ourselves to God. I'll give you an opportunity. There will be little leaves, and you can write on there. You can confess. You can certainly confess your sin. You can confess your renewed trust in God. You see, the word confess can cover a, a number of different thoughts. So you, it's basically a matter of bringing yourself before God, whatever it is, and surrendering more and more of your life to Him. Of course, one of the ways in which we can surrender ourselves to Him is with our time. And so maybe this season, these six, seven weeks, will be a time when you'll say, I'm going to surrender more of my time to God. I'm going to surrender more of my time so that I can do things like pray. I can do things like read my Bible or work in a devotional or, or I can be more committed to being a part of my community group. I can take this time and, and just say, I'm going to surrender more of my life to God in this period. It's an opportunity for us to rest from the busyness of life, to refocus our life on these things that can really help to engage our souls. One of the things that, that I'm going to do is, I believe, yeah, starting next week, I'm going to have a family devotional available for you that's going to be based on the message that I preach, and I encourage you to take that home and do it with your family. Take it home, do it with your kids. Let that be, uh, allow that exercise, that spiritual exercise to be something that you don't just do by yourself, but that you do with your family. As we surrender ourselves more and more, may our souls become fit. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for your great love for us. We praise you that you have sought us out. Though we have turned to so many other things, believing that they will bring joy and peace to our souls, God, you are the one who has waited and continue to wait for us patiently. God, we praise you that you are a God that at any moment when we are willing to turn you are there to welcome us back into your presence that we might find where life truly is. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.